Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Alrighty, welcome back to our listeners. Today's podcast is going to focus in on sports medicine, therapeutic treatments for pain, tendinopathy, arthritis, and my guest today is Dr. Scott Shallow. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm I'm going to claim to our listeners right now that I purposefully did not do a lot of research on this topic so that I could ask questions that I feel like most people would ask. So um, I guess the first question I want to start with is, that I have that people may be wondering is, is a sports medicine doctor a doctor? Like what kind of training did you sort of go through? Tell us a little bit about you and sports medicine therapy. Yeah, for sure. So a sports medicine doctor in particular is an MD or a medical doctor. Um, so for myself, I did medical school um, after doing an undergraduate degree. And then after medical school, you have to go into a residency, which is your specialty. And my specialty was in family medicine. Um, and my subspecialty was done in sports medicine, which is a fellowship training program. Um, so generally, sports medicine physicians are um, kind of one of four different backgrounds. One is a primary care sport medicine doctor like myself, so a family doctor who then does extended training in sport medicine. The other options are an emergency medicine doctor can go back and do training in uh, sport medicine as well. Um, orthopedic surgeons can uh, complete a fellowship in sport and exercise medicine as well and write the national exam after their residency is completed. And lastly is a physical medicine rehab rehabilitation, also known as physiatrists. They can also become sport medicine doctors. So um, traditionally, when you hear the phrase sports medicine doctor, it's uh, one of those sort of backgrounds of physicians of uh, medical degrees and, and various residency training programs. Amazing. Yeah, that's, that's good to clarify. Mm -hmm. um, so what made you decide sports medicine as a subspecialty for you? Oh, that's a great question. So mine actually stems from about the age of 14 or 15 when I first got my first major injury playing football. Uh, I tore up my knee and ended up going to see a sport medicine doctor. At the time, I had no idea what that was. And my future dreams were, were kind of centered around being a, a gym teacher, actually. <laughs> And uh, I had this injury and I was sitting in his office and he had all these models around these little knee models and these different pictures of the anatomy and I was kind of floored. I ended up picking up one of the knee models while I was waiting for the doctor to come in and I was kind of playing around with it, tweaking it side to side and I actually broke the model. <laughs> So, and that was sort of my first introduction into sport medicine. I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. And I ended up playing with it and testing the ligaments and kind of cracking one of them. So I was like, oh God, I thought I'd get in trouble. But then I ended up talking to him about it. And sort of since the age of about 14, 15, I was kind of keen on doing sport medicine. Um, and from there, I went into kinesiology, medical school, residency. And finally, after 11 years of education, I finally got there. <laughs> Amazing. It, you know, it's a, it's a long journey, but you know, when you're passionate about something, it's so um, worthwhile. Yeah, so. no, it, you know, you finally like, see the light at the end of the tunnel getting closer. And when you get there, it's pretty awesome, I must say. Yeah. So are you then practicing as like a, like, I'm just trying to kind of wrap my head around it. So like, are you practicing family medicine or are you practicing sports medicine like how does that how does that work yeah so you can really do whatever you want in that okay. respect i'm uh, i'm predominantly practicing sport medicine but on the side i'll do some family medicine because it keeps uh, the hours up and um you know filling in here and there it's also really important as a primary care sport med doc so when i take over as a team physician not only am i dealing with the msk issues and you know the joint sprains tears and injuries whenever they have a, you know, a cold or if one of our athletes needs birth control or something like that. And very commonly when you need an STI or an STD treated, I'm the, I'm the go-to person. So you have to keep up the skills with that. So it's important to do some family medicine on the side. So my practice is about 80%, 90% sport medicine right now. And, uh, you know, still doing some family medicine on the side just to keep, um, keep busy and keep my skills up. Excellent. So then are you, 
working in what we would traditionally think of like a, a family doctor office or are you working in a rehab center? Like if somebody wants to come and see you mm-hmm. or see a sports medicine doctor, where, where do they, like, where would they find somebody? Yeah, great question. So whenever I'm doing family medicine, it's in sort of a traditional family medicine clinic where I'm filling in for other colleagues and kind of picking up a shift here or there at, at uh, student health and things like that. But generally, my sport med practice is out of sports physiotherapy clinics and um, athletic. So uh, at Queen's University, where I'm also centered out of, I work at the athletic center. We have a uh, athletic therapy center with physios and ATs and RMTs, and we have a couple of doctors' offices, so some docs work out of there as well. So traditionally, when you're seeing a sports medicine doctor, the most common place will either be in a hospital, at an, in an outpatient clinic, or um, in in a generalized outpatient, you know, physiotherapy, sports medicine, sometimes chiropractic clinic, those type of places. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure this is a, a question you've probably. Um, been asked, but is this like an OHIP funded um, yep. thing? Yeah. So everything, uh, every patient uh, assessment we see is OHIP funded. So just like, you know, a consultation with uh, a rheumatologist or an endocrinologist or something like that, all of our consultations are OHIP funded, just like any other kind of gig. Um, sometimes the medications we use will be covered by OHIP or insurance, but sometimes patients will have to pay out of pocket for certain anti-inflammatories or therapies that we do. Um, when you talk about some of the injection things that we end up getting into, like trigger point injections, cortisone, and some of the biological therapies that we'll talk about a little bit later on today, those would be something that typically isn't OHIP funded, uh, but very often are covered by private insurance or patients will have to pay out of pocket. But seeing us in consultation and follow-up, that is 100% covered uh, by gotcha. the Ontario government. Now, can a patient or a client um, just come and see you like off the street or is like a specific referral needed to be made? Like can a physio refer to you, Cairo, massage? Like can anybody refer to you or is it like you're a specialist and only a family doctor can refer? Um, so that's actually a great question. That's something that comes up quite a bit. There's a bit of a variability between people. So for myself, I trust my physio and Cairo colleagues more than anybody. So if they think that someone needs to be seen, then I'm always happy to see somebody from a colleague to colleague referral. Um, there are some clinicians who will prefer to keep uh, referrals uh, made by physicians, whether it be someone's family physician or the emergency room or a walk-in clinic. Reason being is because they think that that would be you know, an appropriate referral rather than somebody walking in when they don't necessarily need to see a sports medicine doctor when it's more something appropriate for them to be seeing you know, like an emergency doctor or a family doctor. Because like I said, the backgrounds of each sports medicine doctor is a bit different. So there are some people who need to have, who will make all patients get a referral to see them. One of the reasons is because it affects our fee schedule and how patients are, um, um, how the OHIP is charged, whether or not uh, family doctors um, are billed on the side versus uh, the sport medicine doctor can bill directly to the government. It's a bit confusing when you get to that sense. But generally, uh, most, I would say, need a referral. But if you have a great relationship with your colleagues and you know everyone in the area, then most are happy to see you know referrals from other therapists and chiropractors and you know even family friends and that kind of thing. So it varies a bit depending on where you are and who you are. Gotcha. So being a physio myself, um, and I'm just thinking like for physios or chiros who may be listening to this podcast, would you then suggest like if, um, would you suggest for us to reach out to a sports medicine doctor in the area to like kind of develop um, a connection relationship Mm -hmm. to see if that's a possibility? Would that be the more recommended approach? Yeah, no, that would be a great idea, especially if you don't have a sport med doc who works out of your clinic. It's funny that you ask because just earlier today, I, I actually got a call from a, a new physio clinic next door that just opened this week and they actually asked me to stop by and I was able to squeeze in at the end of the day. They gave me a tour. They let me know kind of what each therapist specializes in and, and who those ones would be best, to, what patients would be best to refer to each person. So, you know, just having a great network of people around you, it, it, I'm particular when it comes to you know who I like to recommend and where I know because it's just like I say with many things you know a good physio and a good chiro and a good RMT is a lot like a good carpenter there's good ones and there's bad ones so when you find someone that you're comfortable sending people to and recommending it's great to have that sort of background and have some cards laying around um, but yeah I think reaching out and kind of just 
opening the dialogue because the sports med community is quite tight knit and it's really important to kind of realize who the good therapists around are just like you know I like to have therapists think of me when they think of needing a good sport medicine doctor just like I'd, I'd want a therapist to want me to think of them when I want to look for someone to refer them to okay excellent um so let's maybe dive a little bit into like what does a sports medicine doctor do so maybe talking a little bit about you know what type of a set like what type of assessment like who what do you do for assessment kind of thing and, mm-hmm. and then we'll kind of dive into treatment yeah absolutely so i guess i guess i could ask you how much time we got because <laughs> i could talk all day about that one but so you know i think everyone has their role in healthcare and the role that we fill as primary care sports medicine is there's a big disconnect between excellent care in sports medicine and msk medicine and musculoskeletal medicine and and really primary care whether it be the emergency department or family medicine and you know coming from family medicine background there's so many things we need to learn in, in residency and it's hard to know a lot about every single thing, but rather you need to know, you know, something about everything. And, and that's truly what the, the, you know, what the grassroots of family medicine is. So one of the roles of primary care sport medicine is to fill that gap and be musculoskeletal medicine experts within the realm of primary care. So what that means is you can be seen with or without a referral. You can um, see many, many patients. You don't need to depend on having OR time or anything like that. And really, we represent the experts of musculoskeletal medicine across the medical side of the field. Obviously, we're not physiotherapists. We're not massage therapists. And just vice versa, I would say. Um, so it's really important to kind of know that not only are we kind of MSK diagnosticians, we also know when to refer to who, when it's appropriate to send for imaging, uh, as that's a huge topic that we could talk all day about is, you know, the ordering of imaging and when it's appropriate, when it's not appropriate, when to refer to surgery. And then, you know, we have various forms of therapeutic approaches that we can add. Like one thing that I'm able to do is I'm able to prescribe exercises and, and teach things to patients who don't have coverage for physiotherapy and can't afford to go on top of that. I can add some interventional things like there are some primary care doctors who do acupuncture still. Um, and then there's things like injections and trigger points and needling that we can do and various ultrasound guided procedures that we kind of add to your toolbox, depending on what your interests are and what your skills are. But really it's sort of that the, the um, non-surgical musculoskeletal medicine experts of, of, of the medical field per se. Excellent. So I'm thinking, you know, like uh, an athlete gets injured on the field. Oftentimes they're not necessarily being diagnosed perhaps right there. If it's a knee injury, you know, and it's acute, like everything kind of hurts. Right. Right. So then maybe, you know, would they be coming to see you um, to kind of narrow it down to like, okay, you know, is this a ligament injury? Is a meniscus injury? Like what's actually going down? And you're then taking the whole picture, the subjective and objective testings to see, okay, is there enough information for me to know what this is or order imaging? And then, you know, from there you'd be providing the appropriate care and or referral. Yeah, and I think that's another thing that really is unique to the sports medicine wor- world. So we're trained to be not only team physicians um, and manage all the things that come in for managing, you know, being, a, you know, I've worked with Team Canada Cycling, many, uh, the OHL Kings of Frontenac, the OHL Belleville, um, the OHL Hamilton Bulldogs and the Belleville Senators of the AHL. So you, you get extra training on how to be a team physician, which includes traveling with the team, managing vaccines for athletes, managing infectious diseases for athletes. Um, and then one thing that we also add is we do provide the sideline coverage that is so vital to high-level athletes. Um, you know, just last week I covered a national football tournament. It's called the Football Canada Cup. So it's the under-18 national championships in football. And, you know, within a five-day tournament, I had two C-spine uh, injuries on the field that I needed to manage. And, I, you know, I'm the person there managing and leading the team with the help of all my athletic therapists and, and whatever team trainers that we have available. So not only do you get this sort of expert in musculoskeletal medicine, but you also get training in how to manage a team physician role, how to be a first responder on the field and manage things like m- major injuries, or follow up for injuries like a ligamentous injury, you know, we see a player on a Friday, you're not really going to get a good assessment of his knee until Tuesday. So you're kind of responsible for that follow up. Um, and then on top of that, I think one thing that we also are is so vital with the team sports and covering young athletes and things like that is concussion care. You know, we yeah. we're really the we're really kind of on the cutting edge of interest in concussion care and because it's so important in primary access, both 
being there on the field and also follow up and return to sport, return to learn. So that's one thing that I think a lot of the people in sports medicine really pride themselves in these days. Yeah. And, and for me, you know, um, not really knowing so much about this, both from like somebody listening who may have been injured to a practitioner kind of getting a sense of like, okay, this is sort of what they do and how they fit in, in, um, the whole like integrated multidisciplinary, Mm -hmm. you know, treatment approach. So I have a question then. Um, so let's say a physio or chiro has been working with a client for a while, like doing all the traditional, you know, treatment approaches and we're getting stuck. Like, you know, they're just not progressing in a way that um, we would want to be seeing. Like, when would it be an appropriate time for us to refer to somebody like you? And, you know, that's an excellent question. And I think the best way to approach that is there's no right answer because there's never a time very, very, very infrequently would I ever know someone in sports medicine to decline a referral or say this is a silly consult. You're really there as, as an adjunct to whatever your therapists are doing and everyone else is doing because we know that not every part of rehab is sort of one thing. We're all interconnected. And it's not this truncated sort of this is your role, this is mine, but we all have to work together and find what's best for the patient. Um, So I think at any point where you're kind of wondering, okay, this isn't progressing as the way I thought it would, what am I missing? Because you can often get pigeonholed, both doctors and therapists can get pigeonholed and sort of, I'm treating this problem, why aren't they getting better? So maybe a fresh set of eyes would help. Or if you're starting to wonder, okay, maybe this does need imaging or something along those lines, or even, you know, if does this need something like an injection or a surgical consult, any of those would be reasonable. Just ask the question. For sure. Yeah. It's always good to kind of keep that mode of uh, communication open. And, and I must say one of my most valuable kind of intake things is when I get notes from therapists to let, let me know what the therapist has actually done, what's worked, what's not worked, why aren't they progressing, what do they think, right? Because again, everyone's got those different approaches and, and not everyone has sort of all the answers. Yeah. But together, we could maybe, you know, really figure it out. Figure that out. Exactly. Excellent. Okay. So I've heard a few of these, you know, I want to kind of get into a little bit of treatment in terms mm-hmm. of uniquely what you offer. You know, you're talking about trigger point in injections yep. um, where, you know, I've, I've heard in discussions, you know, terms like PRP, mm-hmm. uh, stem cells, uh, prolo, all of these big terms that I don't think the average person knows anything about. Never mind me as a therapist. I'm like, right. I don't know, I have an idea of what that is, but I don't know mm-hmm. what it is and how it works and when those things would be indicated. So maybe we can start with the injections. Like what yep. kind of injections do you do? What is it for? How does it work? That kind of. Yeah. So really you can kind of Break it up a number of different ways. You can break it up into what condition we're treating, whether it's a tendinopathy, whether it's a muscle tear, whether or not it's arthritis, um, or you could break it up in terms of what we're injecting. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I think you could, again, have this conversation for quite a bit, but I think the best place to start is probably just good old cortisone. Um, Most people have heard of it. Yes. You know, cortisone has an excellent role and is an incredibly strong anti-inflammatory. So what it is, it's a corticosteroid um, that basically is one of the strongest anti-inflammatories that we've been able to synthetically make. Um, Cortisone has gotten a bit of a bad rap over the years because of uh, multiple reasons. One being, in the past, I think when it first came out, the idea of this amazing new medication had very little side effects. It was wonderful. People's pain got better. People's tendinopathies got better, et cetera, et cetera. So I think people were using it too often, too many places, um, and too many people. Whereas I think now we've almost gone too far the other way where there's sort of, and I think I've mentioned this to you before, uh, almost the realm of what's called, I call cortisonophobia, which are people are actually afraid to use it, even in the indicated instances, just because they've heard bad things, both patients and family doctors, both patients and even uh, sports medicine doctors. So cortisone has a great role for two purposes. One, I think when you have these people in your therapy practice who are just in so much pain, they can't even imagine starting an exercise protocol. They can't even imagine isometric training, let alone doing eccentric overload training for tendinopathies. Cortisone can help decrease that pain cycle or break the pain cycle. And I often describe it to patients as if we just put a fire extinguisher on the fire, we calm it down, we settle that pain, that will then allow you to engage in therapy more. 
that's a huge role. And I think today, even, even though we used to use it so much in the past, people are still afraid to use it, even though that has a great therapeutic potential for those type of people. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the one realm I think it works great for still. The other realm is there are going to be people who have no interest in participating in therapy. There are going to be people who their entire goal in life is to you know, fight their way through golf season because of their knee away or their tennis elbow. And all they want to do is just have their pain improved and the quality of life so they can enjoy golf season. Or the other classic one we see is people who come in with a stiff knee with arthritis before they go away on a walking trip to Europe. And they want to enjoy that. So that's another. It does have a role as a quality of life improver for managing pain as, again, putting out the inflammation and putting out that fire in different um, conditions. Say most commonly what it's used for uh, is osteoarthritis, whether it be of the, the uh, knee. Uh, we also use it intraticularly in the hip as well. And some spots in the back, like the SI joint. And, um, and I think, shoulder, shoulder. Yep. Shoulder exactly. Apathies. Shoulder bursitis, shoulder tendinopathies, AC joints, glenohumeral for frozen shoulder, many, many different roles. Mm-hmm. I think where it's starting to fall a little bit more and more out of favor, and because the evidence is kind of coming up in some ways against certain things like chronic use and extensor tendinopathy. That's sort of the one we, we've kind of decided to shift away from a little bit. Reason is, is because we've looked at sort of studies, one, two-year, three-year follow-up, basically getting a cortisone injection versus just education and watchful waiting. They tend to actually do better with just watchful waiting long-term. Again, I think there is a role to decrease that pain, to break that pain cycle so people can engage in therapy. So hopefully long-term, they get better. Because often, you know, in these studies, they just tell them cortisone injection or nothing. And then the people with the cortisone injection don't engage in regular therapy and things like that. So if you add in those things and use cortisone as just an adjunct rather than the only treatment, I think it still has quite a, quite a role in, in, you know, in limited use. And the same thing, it's kind of moved away from using it in the greater trochanteric pain syndrome side of the world. You know, back in the day, people used to inject GT versus like, like it was in, uh, in style and in vogue. And that's kind of fallen away again. Also because there was a study last year that showed, again, one-year follow-up reassurance and education and weight loss training versus injection. People who had the education and weight loss group were definitely uh, better. Um, but osteoarthritis is probably still its primary use, I'd say. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I've certainly seen it in practice, you know, uh, um, a, a client will get a cortisone shot, will respond really well, um, and, and will engage then in, you know, helping that tissue remodel. And I think, you know, just getting the shot, but not addressing the risk factors that kind of got you there in the first place, and then actually rehabbing you know, let's say it's the tendon, you know, if there's been a partial tear or, you know, you got calcification or you got some sort of inflammation, I think those tendons still need to be exercised in order to optimize their function so that, you know, we're talking four or five years later down the road, you know, um, they're not re-injuring themselves because they've gone through the remodeling phase. And so I feel like sometimes that exercise piece, I think people have stopped thinking of exercise as medicine. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so we think medicine as like a pill, an injection, like something prescription, whereas like the exercise is medicine too. It just may need a little bit of something to help get you down the exercise road right. that you can progress. Exactly. And we, I see it all the time. People come in, they've been doing therapy for six months. They didn't, they, they weren't getting it better. They kind of hit a plateau. So we'll try something like a, you know, a subacromial injection or a glenohumeral joint injection and they'll get pain-free within two weeks and then they'll just stop doing their exercises. And inevitably they'll come back in three months and say, you know what, doc, I, I felt so good. I stopped doing my exercises. I thought it was all better forever. And then it kind of is crumbling back now. So I might get back into therapy. What do you think, et cetera, and, and all the time. So one of the big roles of somebody is, you know, a provider of things like injections is I, I tell every single person, this is not the cure. This is a one step in trying to make your pain free so you can engage in the exercise medicine that, you know, you know, they always say announce, uh, you know, a pound of, uh, what is it? Announce a, prevention is worth a pound of cure. Yes. So yes. keeping people on that sort of preventative rehab protocol the whole way through is, is just massively important. Yeah, 
Absolutely. So that's good that we sort of talked about cortisone because I wasn't even necessarily, um, you know, thinking about that, but that's definitely a common one that's being Mm -hmm. you know, recommended or talked about. Um, So getting some clarity on that, I think is um, sort of important. Um, So let's maybe change gears here and let's talk about what, what is PRP? Um, I know it's platelets. I know you're spinning blood and you're pulling stuff out of the blood. And then I think you're re-injecting, but I'll let you kind of explain. Yeah. So you did a pretty good job. Uh, so PRP is, is platelet-rich plasma. So um, platelets are one of the main uh, healing and growth factors in your blood. It's sort of the initial plug that happens when you cut your arm or tear a tendon. The initial healing process that fights to get there as quickly as possible, plugs up that bleeding, plugs up uh, and forms a hematoma or the initial platelets. So what we've developed as a, over time, and it's been around for about 15, 20 years now, is the process of drawing a sample of blood, usually about 90 cc's, and it varies depending on what preparation you use, of a patient's own blood. They spin that down in a centrifuge. What that does is it basically separates out all the red blood cells, all the white blood cells, also known as leukocytes, and really keeps the plasma, which is sort of the base of the blood, um, and, and the platelets. And, and in combination with the platelets, also all, all the growth factors will settle where that platelet uh, solution is. You then uh, separate it out, so you drop the plasma and the platelets, so it's, that's why it's called platelet-rich plasma. And um, that's where you get the majority of those platelets and the majority of those healing factors, and then you re-inject it into a tendon or joint. Um, the purpose of it is is a few fewfold. So basically, the evidence is sort of suggesting that the best anti-inflammatory that we've been able to come up with, whether synthetic or natural, is actually your own blood, which you know in, intuitively makes sense. It's something our body's been working for you know millennia <laughs> to improve. So that's one of the processes we're trying to maximize by doing this. And that's one of the major uh, benefits of it. So for pain management, so typically for something like osteoarthritis, where we're re-injecting platelet-rich plasma, the evidence over the last few years is starting to show uh, when we get into longer-term studies, um, comparatively to cortisone, say uh, about same pain scores at three months uh, compared to cortisone plus and placebo, um, or sorry, uh, compared to cortisone, better than placebo. And then at six, twelve, eighteen months, it tends to be PRP is better at managing pain mostly for osteoarthritis. So early on, there's the similar effect as cortisone, but it just has a much longer effect than being an anti-inflammatory and managing pain alone. Um, so that's sort of one thing. That's sort of the pain side of things. Then when you look at PRP as a, a method of tendon healing or tissue healing, um, that's also one of the areas of a lot of interest where we're using it for various things like injecting the same sample of PRP, spun down the same way, same concentration, varying volumes into different sites such as a common extensor origin for chronic tendinopathy or a partial thickness tear. Uh, one that we see quite commonly is like a, a partial thickness tear or chronic patellar tendinopathy as well. And then all over the shoulder joint, it can really be quite effective. And, and what we're doing when we're trying to put into a tendon or a muscle belly is rather than just getting the anti-inflammatory effect that we're hoping for, uh, we're also trying to promote building of a fibrin bridge. So the way I describe it to patients is it's just like if you cut your arm or cut the muscle in your arm, we're trying to restart the healing and kick it in overdrive by rec- re- uh, recreating day one of healing. So if you cut your arm, all these platelets come, all these growth factors come, they start trying to heal the muscle really, really fast. We know that in chronic tendinopathies, chronic muscle tears, your body gets very lazy and stops trying to heal actively. You get a buildup of chronic inflammatory cells, you get painful prostaglycans, and basically what we're trying to do is trying to reproduce that healing that happens day one by hitting the reset button, by super concentrating those platelets and those growth factors in the area, and trying to start a fibrin bridge and almost fill in the gaps of tendonitis and muscle tears and let your body kind of kick back into healing in that area. And I just wanted to maybe clarify um, for the listeners, when you say common extensor group, I'm assuming you mean tennis elbow, which right. is, yeah. you know, for people who may not sort of know what that is, you know, because yeah. it's a common thing that we see. It's a, the repetitive strain injuries. So, mm-hmm. of course, the shoulder being uh, a very common place uh, along with the elbow, right? Yeah. On the outside of the uh, elbow, lots of people typing and repetitive movements like mechanics and things like right. that, you know, where you're getting that elbow motion. Um, so I just wanted to mm-hmm. clarify that this, so that would be an appropriate, um, you know, 
uh, treat potential treatment yeah. for like a chronic tennis elbow. Right. So, so the role of PRP it can really be used in, in anything safely because it is autologous. So it's your own blood being reinjected. Um, the major issues with PRP is we're still trying to figure out exactly how much to use, who to use it in and when to use it in, uh, when to use it rather than just using it everybody. And the main limitation is cost. So Right now, anywhere between five hundred to thousand dollars is basically what you'd expect to have it to be paid for PRP, and that's um, for for one injection. Yeah, typically, um, okay. there's there was one or two studies that showed that maybe a series of three injections was more beneficial. But typically, most their uh, physicians will start with one injection, see how you do, and there's no harm in repeating it. You know, professional athletes get it quite commonly, but obviously, cost is a major issue and. I think over time, as we transition to getting better evidence and learning more about PRP and, like I said, when to use it and who to use it in, uh, the cost will come down and the coverage will go up. Because right now, there's very minimal coverage from a, a private insurance standpoint. Uh, but it, I think the main reason of that is they just want to see proof that it works so we're not just, you know, charging just insurance doing it. companies. Exactly. Gotcha. Um, I think the other area, so we sort of talked about it, its role as an anti-inflammatory and its role in tendon healing, is its role in osteoarthritis is actually probably the area of most excitement right now. Um, so not only does it have these incredible anti-inflammatory pro properties for osteoarthritis, but there is sort of this biochemical data that's coming out very slowly and it's coming and growing year by year. And what it's looking at is the biochemical pathway in a joint where we have osteoarthritis developing, there's a chemical named the WNT or the WNT pathway. The WNT pathway is basically this on switch that if you have WNT and you have the biological process, the WNT pathway going on in a joint, that means active arthritis is building and that's osteoarthritis. So, it's a combination of genetic factors, uh, overuse, you know, weight, previous injuries, all of these things go into, into play about how the WNT pathway, the WNT pathway is firing. So one exciting realm of PRP, and again, the, the reasoning behind this, why it works, is not 100% clear yet, but there's some evidence to say that after injection intraarticularly of PRP, there's a down regulation of the WNT pathway. So that is something that we've never really been able to manipulate before is the development of osteoarthritis. So again, super fresh, super new data. It has a massive therapeutic potential. So maybe in the future, we'll have more of an idea that we cannot regrow knee cartilage or anything like that. But the idea is potentially to maintain what we have for longer. Right. So slowing down the processes um, yeah. of arthritis, not... Yep necessarily re regrowing the cartilage okay exactly. and these and these are being injected like directly into the knee yep. joint itself yep. okay exactly you can it, it's been used in many different places spinal cord uh, you know degenerative disc disease knees hips shoulders it's there's a lots of different places it's been trialed in again the quality of evidence is going to take time um as all think, these studies do take time exactly. and funding for them and finding the participants and making sure exactly. they follow through with the studies. Yeah. I, you know, doing the evidence, you know, being yes. part of the evidence piece is, is, you know, um, it can be, uh, quite challenging, Right. but it's good to see, you know, it's good that we are doing these trials to obviously mm. make sure that they're safe and that they're effective and that, you know, ultimately we, we want to help people, right? We yes. want to help people. We want to help people in pain. Um, is there anything else that you think somebody, you know, who may be considering PRP um, should think about, or does every sports medicine doctor do it by the way, or is uh, it just some? Nope, definitely not every sports medicine doctor. That's a great okay. question. So it all depends on your personal practice. Um, some people have a lot of interest in it, so they're doing research in it. They're doing it quite commonly. Um, other people are kind of more comfortable with the things that they know about. Very many are just comfortable referring out for something like PRP because not only do you have to you have to spit it down, you have to have the equipment, you have to drain, you have to draw the blood yourself, and these type of things. Um, and there are some people who kind of just want to wait for the evidence to come out a little bit longer, but. You know, I think anecdotally, everyone gets their own experience, and, and I, I must say, I've seen excellent results, but again, we always see that with anecdotal stuff, right? It can be very skewed. So um, some people are just a little bit more quick adapting to it, and other people are a little bit more hesitant and waiting for the evidence to come, which I think will come with time. Yeah. And I think why the strongest evidence is available for osteoarthritis is, 
you know, knee arthritis is probably the most uh, compelling argument for PRP in that research. And I think we understand knee arthritis pretty well in terms of objective scoring measures and how to monitor it over time, radiographically and things like that. And if you can get pain scores better, you're likely to get function better. When it comes to something like PRP and looking at the supraspinatus tears, for instance, or impingement, I think the evidence is going to take a lot longer to develop. It's been quite weak so far. And I think the biggest reason for that is so much goes into the rehabilitation of a shoulder injury. You need to look at scapular dynamics. You need to look at posture. You need to look at overuse. You need to look at how your rotator cuff is firing in conjunction with your scapula. It's, it's mind-boggling how complicated the shoulder can get. So just squirting in PRP into a tendon isn't going to heal you. It's combination of all these other things yes correct yeah so what what is prolo because i'm actually gonna say i I, this one never heard of (laughs) fair enough so uh when 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 we were talking about it and you were sort of having a conversation talking with somebody about it i was like what is prolo yeah so prolo has been around a little bit longer than even uh prp um not many people, not, not a ton of people are doing uh, prolotherapy uh, as often as PRP. And the reason is, is there's not as much funding for research anymore. Um, and there's not as much push behind companies because it you don't need a kit or any drawing of blood to do prolotherapy. So what prolotherapy is, is it's just a high concentration of sugar water or dextrose in okay. combination with a couple of different solutions. And you're injecting it in typically tendons and muscles. And again, you're trying to promote healing. Um, not too dissimilar from PRP. The evidence for Prolo has never been great. Uh, reason being is because it's always more or less been strictly stuck to tendons and muscles because it doesn't have a major role in articularly, although some people do practice that way. It's not something I've ever done. Um, the idea behind it is you're putting in this high concentration dextrose, so it's a safe solution to be placing into a tendon or a muscle belly. And again, you're trying to aggravate the, ten- the, the body's healing processes by almost like irritating the area. It's not too dissimilar to some of the fenestration procedures we do. So some things that we've done for things like chronic elbow um, tendonitis, whether it be medial or lateral tendonitis, um, we will fenestrate the tendon and irritate it, almost like perforating a lawn to try to promote healing again. And that's sort of the idea for prolotherapy. Without having to do the fenestration procedure, you're trying to cause an irritant to the area, which then again promotes healing. Okay. Um, this may be a silly question, but how do you do th- how, what did you call it? Fre- I can't even say the word. <laughs> So, uh, fenestration. Yes, thank you. It's a fancy way of saying poking a tendon a whole bunch of times. Okay. Or muscle belly, just to promote healing. Because, again, when your body stops actively healing and and there's plenty of scar tissue there, we know that the healing isn't optimal. So, we're fenestrating it almost to replicate a recent injury to then restart the process. Gotcha. Um, Whereas prolotherapy, instead of doing that fenestration or that basically a uh, little um, aeration process, we're injecting the sugar water to deal, do that itself. Um, the benefits of prolotherapy are, again, some people do excellent with it, very well with it. I'd say the most success I've seen with it is probably glutamine tendinopathy, just because the chronic irritations there, it does help a bit with pain, but not as quickly as something like cortisone. Um, but you're restarting the healing process and allowing those fibrin bridges that your body wants to put down to put down. And again, very little harm and it's much, much cheaper. We're talking on the order of most people would charge 15, 20 bucks for a treatment um, rather than, you know, the thousand to 500 for PRP. So it's an option in the toolbox. Again, it's not sort of a uh, standalone uh, treatment, but it, it, it can be something that adjunctively works quite well. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, you know, this is, this is a, I would say this is a, perhaps a hot topic. I mean, it's certainly been a controversial topic in the media, uh, centered around stem cells. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I'm curious, uh, you know, where, where are things in the stem cell research realm as it relates to a th- therapeutic approach for, let's say, a tendinopathy, an osteoarthritis, um, a muscle tear? Mm -hmm. 
So big, big topic for sure. Uh, very recently in the news and in the media, because as of about a month and a half ago, um, there's been an FDA ban in the United States um, on the use of uh, stem cells until more randomized control studies are being done. Um, and then Health Canada adopted that ban as well. So there's uh, two big realms of stem cell therapy. One is called uh, BMAC or bone marrow aspirate. So it's basically taking a, a dose of bone marrow derived stem cells uh, from typically the iliac crest or, or any other long bone. Um, and or the other one is adipose. So taking a fat sample from uh, typically the, the glute, gluteus region and spinning that down, deriving high concentration of stem cells from it and re-injecting it to, like you said, a tendon or a joint. But because uh, the FDA and the Health Canada have put a hold on that, that's basically um, persona non grata for at least a year, they think, until they're going to do some randomized studies just to uh, prove efficacy and safety, uh, more, more, more importantly. Um, so that's been a big shift just within the last few weeks. The concept of stem cells is a very interesting one, and it actually works pretty closely to that of PRP. Um, so one of the reasons why we think PRP works at uh, maintaining cartilage for longer is our body has stem cells all over. That's how we regenerate new, new uh, tissues uh, rather than just completely you know, disintegrating all the time. So we have these pluripotent, undifferentiated stem cells that can develop into various forms of cells, whether it be skin cells, blood cells, etc. So in joints, there are undifferentiated stem cells that have a, a vast potential. So one of the things that PRP does is it basically takes these stem cells and tells it, and we don't know why this happens, but one of the thoughts is this WENT pathway, is it tells these undifferentiated stem cells, hey, you stem cells should become cartilage cells, and they just agree, and they go ahead and become cartilage cells. So there's an increase in chondrocyte proliferation from undifferentiated stem cells in joints that have PRP injected to it. So the next step would be the idea behind stem cell therapy, which is basically if we take a massive concentration of stem cells, whether it be from your fat tissue or your bony tissue, like the bone marrow aspirate, and then inject it into your knee, typically they'll, it'll be in combination with PRP or, or other sort of biological active fa factors to try to stimulate it to those stem cells to become chondrocytes and now become differentiated into cartilage cells. So often stem cells are done in combination with PRP for this purpose. But mm -hmm. the, the theory behind it is if we put 50 million times the number of stem cells in the knee joint and then put in a fluid that convinces these stem cells to become cartilage, boom, bing, bang, boom, we can hopefully grow new cartilage. Absolutely. Uh, I'm trying to think of the name of um, one of the people that was talking about his he was talking about his research with um, stem cells. I'm just looking up his name right now because, oh, um, Bruce Lipton. Okay. Are you familiar with? No, I don't think so. I mean, I've probably, and I probably yeah, so could, uh... <laughs> he, he His area of study was more like um, trying to, uh, so he was taking stem cells and he was putting them in different environments. Mm. What he found was when you put it into a different environment, so either it was hotter, cooler, different chemical compositions that stem cell would be stimulated by its environment so it's the whole like um um like epigenetic right discussion right yeah. that um you know cells can become something the same cell can become two different things based mm -hmm. on environment so i think it you know it makes sense that you're saying okay it, it would be in combination with like prp or some other agent that would Right, because you don't want to be injecting a stem cell in one yeah. thing and then getting skin out of it. <laughs> well, and exactly, right? and that's the big concern, right? Right. So, you know, the recurring joke is whether or not injecting somebody's knee with stem cells is going to create a tumor or something like that. Um, and, and I think, and it makes sense that there's been a bit of a pump of the brakes because I think there were some uh, people who might have been using it for really out there ideas and reasons like um, replacing Botox therapy and treating wrinkles and treating, you know, lots of cosmetic things like skin cosmesis, breast cosmesis. Um, one, I, one I've actually come across is treating vaginal atrophy. So they're doing, you know, um, stem cell injections into the tissue of the vaginal canal to try to promote, you know, regeneration. So, again, it, it's not surprising that there's been a bit of a hold on it. But I, I think where it was being used in sort of the sports medicine MSK realm might have had a bit more steam behind it and a bit more logic. But unfortunately, everything's kind of taking a step back for now. So we'll have to just wait and see on that.
Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's one of, again, it's one of those, um, you know, areas that, you know, maybe hasn't been talked about as much publicly because of all sorts of different controversies right. around stem cell use. Um, you know, but it, it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what the evidence um, comes out uh, and, you know, patient safety, um, you know, whenever you're injecting anything yeah. uh, is, you know, is paramount, right? Cause you know, we really don't want to um, make a situation worse for anybody. Mm. Um, so you know, I'm glad that they're going to take the time to um, really look into that further. So we've talked about like those type of therapeutic Mm -hmm. um, approaches, but you know, I I don't want to necessarily paint a picture of sports medicine docs of just like injecting things. So I I wanted to maybe, um, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, what other therapies are you, you talked about exercise prescription as being uh, a therapeutic um, modality that you use, but are there you know, are you guys doing any hands-on stuff? Like, do you have hands-on techniques that you do? Like, is there anything else that you guys do that I'm not aware of? Yeah. I, so I think that, um, you know, I might have a bit of a skewed uh, practice just because I know we've chatted before. I had a background in physio before medical school. So um, that was one thing I really do enjoy still teaching therapeutic exercises and, and really getting into some of the nitty gritty of um, real like concussion care is what I really enjoy. Like some of the vestibular ocular rehab and um, which, which I do quite a bit of. And then um, the other thing is a cervical flexor, you know, activation and retraining post whiplash, post concussive, concussive injury. That's something I really enjoy. So that's something I'm doing a bit of more hands-on than probably the average sports med doc. But like I said, there are some sports med docs who still do primary care acupuncture and they love it and they swear by it. And again, if, you know, if I'm providing somebody with vestibular rehab, you know, I definitely know that my limitations are, are, are much greater than some of the excellent therapists around but it's something that I can provide that's covered by OHIP and I can hopefully get them started on a program and if we don't get the results that we need then I I have no quarrel in sending to somebody who's much better at it than me Um, and then the other thing I think that there's a huge huge area that we do that you know we're quite fortunate to work with special populations like uh, Paralympic athletes and para-athletes in general, um, definitely an awesome community to work with, great community to be a part of, very positive, uh, very amazing stories, uh, athletes who are just driven to get better. And one of the things that, you know, I quite enjoy about working with the para-athletes is, you know, if someone's got shoulder tendonitis in their wheelchair sprinter, they're not only off cycle, they're not only off racing for a couple of weeks, they're off on daily function, right? So that comes into the quality of life and the ADLs and the, you know, IADLs that sometimes you have to add, add to what we normally would do when we're talking about high-level athletes. Not to mention some of the major medical emergencies that para-athletes can get caught up in because of whether it be cardiac, neuro, or, you know, um, spinal cord reflux issues. Um, and then another one that I, I quite enjoy is exercise counseling for type 1 diabetics um, as well. So that's one thing, you know, if you go to the average family doctor, not many, you know, family doctors would be super comfortable with counseling on when to take your insulin relative to training, how many carbs you need to replenish within 30 minutes of exercise or, you know, 30 minutes of completing a bout of anaerobic versus aerobic exercise. So that's something that we get trained in that is quite fun and unique. Um, and, you know, the, the benefit of, of medicine and sport medicine as a whole is really you can kind of tailor your practice to however you want it to be. You can be very injection heavy. You can be very concussion heavy. You can be very exercise counseling heavy. You can do a ton of sport coverage. And then again, if, you know, I want to do surgical assist or walk-in clinic or family medicine on the side, all that's an option to me too. So everyone you meet is going to be a little bit different and have our own kind of niche within the realm. Yeah, excellent. No, it's it's good to know um, that there's like these different perspectives. So, you know, we don't, again, you know, we don't want to be painting a profession with like one color. So right, the more that we understand about, you know, different people, just like physios too, like hmm. some physios are very acupuncture based, some physios right. are very exercise based, some are very manual therapy, some yep. are manipulators, some are, you know, there's so many treatment modalities. Hmm. And I think just anybody who might be listening, uh, you know, needs to understand, like, it's good to you know, do some research, right? Check people out, you know, um, and, and see, you know, what resonates uh, well with you in terms of your therapy. Like, mm-hmm. how, how do you want? What do you want done to your body, and how do you want it done by whom? Right. Um, now, are you so? Your 
traveling? Like, do you practice out of a particular place? Are you moving around? Like what, you know, do, do sports medicine therapists typically stay in one spot? Do they, because obviously I know that you recently moved. So that's why I ask, right? It's like, okay, are you staying there? Are you coming back? Like, you know. (laughs) Oh, that's a, I got to be careful here because no matter what I say, I'm going to get angry emails. Um, but yeah, so I've recently relocated to back to Kingston, which is where I did my residency training. I'm going to be here at least for a few years and I've joined an excellent, massive sort of physio, multidisciplinary, sport med, pain med, orthopedic med clinic. And it's a lovely fit. Um, you know, the benefit is again, like what I'm going to be doing is ideally sort of four days a week in my primary practice then a day a week at Queens, working with the Queens athletes, you know, student athlete population is such an excellent group to work with. So that's one thing that I, I really want to enjoy. Um, and I want to get my hands more and more involved with. Um, and then, you know, in terms of moving your practice, you could really open up shop wherever you want at any point. Um, I'm, I'm going to do some access clinics up kind of in Northern Ontario, actually. I've spoken with some of the people up there because they're always looking for people to come and, you know, manage osteoarthritis and manage chronic knee tears and chronic knee issues, chronic shoulder issues in places that are really hard to get access to, to, to you know, orthopedic specialty or sports medicine. Um, and then, you know, my, one of my big interests is, you know, I've always wanted, I, I dream of being in professional sports, working with the Olympics and those kind of things. So this year I'm, I, I travel back and forth to Belleville for uh, part, some of the games there as me and another physician will be covering the Belleville Senators of the AHL. And then, you know, next month I have the lacrosse world championships in Peterborough. So there's all these little cool things and avenues you can get involved with and, and move around. And, you know, if you love what you do, it's not really a job. And that's sort of the way I feel about it. Um, but yeah, the recent move and starting up a new practice, it's all been a, a bit of a whirlwind and, and interesting, but hopefully things settle down and I get to stay put for at least a little while. For, for a little while. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking like, you know, somebody might be listening to this. Maybe they're local. Maybe yep. they're in Northern Ontario. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if people wanted to see if they could potentially access you personally because they yeah. resonate with your message and do today like where can people follow you or find you yeah so that's a great question um so uh i'm on twitter actually uh, at dr golf shirt and no period it's sort of my uh satirical uh twitter account that i like to play around with and uh i write the odd uh satirical article uh, every now and then for a couple medical blogs but uh so the clinic i'm working out of is called kingston orthopedic pain institute or copi k-o-p-i for short um in uh, kingston ontario and that's sort of where else to be centered out of and and, you know, there's excellent sports medicine doctors everywhere, no matter where people are looking for. So if they are looking to find somebody in the area who might be a good fit for them, um, our best resource would be what we call CASM or Canadian Academy of Sport and Exercise Med. So C-A-S-E-M. And there's a great website with sort of a directory of who's around, recent resources, upcoming events. And, um, and you know, for somebody who can't come all the way to Kingston just to see lonely old me, they could find an excellent sport doc nearby who they can probably read a little bit about online and see what their interests are and what they do as well. Amazing. Thank you. And, and for our listeners who may not have jotted all those things down, don't worry, we will get those links yep. and we will post them in the show notes that uh, you can find in the podcast description, awesome. um, as well as on our uh, hosting page for the podcast, which is www.ecophysio.com forward slash videos. Of course, you know, subscribing to the podcast um, is always a great idea and sharing with anybody who you think may be interested in learning about this topic or any of the topics we've recorded. So, uh, so Scott, we're, we're going to put all that info out there. Um, I may ask you again to send it to me um, so I can get it in the show notes for people. And I I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to not only educate me, but, you know, really to help other people understand sports medicine therapy and like what you guys do. So really grateful. Always happy to chat. It's a lot of fun and it's always a lot of uh, info back and forth that's helpful for everyone, I think. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks again. And uh, wishing you the best of luck with the uh, new clinic. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.